Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 120 of The Boys in Short Pants, the 121st episode. I'm Laurent Carbonum. I'm Anton Rainville. Happy New Year to uh, to our listeners. Um, yeah, so it's going to be uh, hopefully slightly better than the last few years, one hopes. It's not off to a good start, though. Not off to a fantastic start, no. Um, but, you know, one one can hope. One can hope. So we wanted to do <laughs> that's all that's, that's all that's all we've got that's all we got uh, on that front. Um, yeah, we just want to talk a little bit today. I don't think this is going to be a super super long one. Uh, this might in fact be the shortest episode we've ever done. We have said that before, and then ended up recording for a really long time. So you know, one's mileage may of course vary, um, including ours. Uh, but we just want to touch a little bit, taking stock of kind of the last couple of months um, and kind of what's going on, what's coming up, and uh, what we think about how things have rolled out so far since the uh, 2021 federal election, which happened like three months ago. It feels like a lifetime at this point, but it was actually three months ago. It truly does. And I think, you know, our two most recent episodes are episodes of guests. Um, turns out it's actually reasonably hard to record sort of an in-the-weeds political podcast about parliamentary no, affairs. Yeah. And when there are no on. weeds going on. When... Uh, Nothing is growing. They have not even put the soil down. Uh, like there's just, just no weeds. It's just sort of that barren landscaping. Yes. Uh, pre-landscaping house construction stage of things. Um, yeah. I So, let, let's backtrack. In 2019, um, leading up to the COVID pandemic, um, there were a number of global events. Um, you know, bombings in Iraq, the killing of Iranian generals. Um, things that made me at that time observe that it is nice, it nice to be to able to take right your now. time in yeah. government in terms of deciding who your team is and getting mandate yes. letters and all these things out the doors. But the world doesn't wait for that. Yeah, and it's worth saying, after 2019, as you say, there was the MH470, the, yeah, the, the plane going from uh, Iran to Ukraine that was shot down in Iran. Um, in January, yeah, that was like right at the beginning of January, as I recall, or maybe even still in December. Um, and then there was very quickly after that, there was the big uh, rail blockades in February and the whole Wet'suwet'en crisis, and then quickly followed by the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And by that time, I think well, to be fair, the COVID pandemic was ongoing, uh, just in different regions of the world sure. throughout the first as two of those of months. Acute, well, of course, it can. The risk to Canadians as well. <laughs> it was very low, months, so wasn't it? We, we can't expect anyone to think that that could change. It was low was, until it was extremely high. Yes, I still am waiting for my ATIPs on that. Uh, <laughs> I'm very curious to see the analysis. Uh, at any rate, well, I'm sure I'll be waiting for the next 15 years, so whatever. It's no point even getting mad about it. The the formal COVID inquiry. Oh, yeah. Come and, and gone by th- then. This is sort of a, 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 you know, cranky public transparency guy thing. But, like, the ATIP system is, is completely just a walking corpse at this point. There is, there is just nothing going on there. Um, you're going to be waiting forever for everything. And, like... Yeah, the information, like, and you're like, oh, well, I think they're just using the excuse of COVID to drag their feet, and I want to go to the information commissioner. Great, you're going to be waiting another five years for that, too, so good luck. Uh, public transparency is alive and well here, folks. Doing great. It's just resting. <laughs> A-tip a grievances aside. Yes. And they are many, folks. Um, they are many. The point was, for longtime listeners of the show, this, you know, this might sound familiar to say that um, p- 
post-election, the government hasn't been fast out of the gate in terms of um, putting together its priorities, making a cabinet, putting mandate letters out, returning to parliament, passing legislation through parliament, basically all of the things in government. Yes, and we've observed before, too, that they were, by comparison, quite quick out the gate in 2015. Oh, they were. It's actually interesting when you you pull the dates um, and compare them. I did on the Twitter account. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was like you know twenty days. Yeah, twenty fifteen. I do remember the dates. mandate letters, if not less than that. It was super super quick because the election was, I believe, October twenty first, twenty fifteen, and then there was a cabinet on November fourth, and mandate letters. I think within a week or two of that. Yeah, it was very fast, and. We got mandate letters. I had the number in front of me. I think it was 87 days. That's correct. Post-election. Yeah. Which for an election that the prime minister himself billed as the most important since 1945. Yes. And it was basically they needed a mandate. And we we said all this in the cabinet episode. But it was like, we need a mandate so we can get on with our bold agenda of doing things. And it's like, well, let's hold up for a little bit while we (laughs) figure out what we want to do and who we want to do it. Let's go on vacation to Tofino. Let's relax. Let's, you know, extend our deadline for staffing up. A lot of offices saw a tremendous turnover of staff. And so that process has been incredibly sluggish. Naming cabinet committees, cabinet, getting mandate letters out the door. Parliamentary secretaries. Parliamentary secretaries, you name it. It has all been stunningly sluggish this go-round. Yes. And, like, you know, I think if we're talking about a most important election since 1945 sort of frame, which, you know, that is that is effectively what we are what we were in, um, I mean, people talk about FDR's 100 days, right? And as you say, it took them 87 days from the election to, and, you know, obviously allowing for the fact that the American president only got inaugurated in March at that point. Uh, let's take away the enforced lame duck. And the self-imposed lame duck here was quite considerable because the caretaker convention ended the night of the election. They could have appointed a government the next day. Like, But no one believed, and, and this is another, I would say, disconcerting trend in terms of, uh, you know, accountability of our governments, oh, both, God, both yeah. provincially and federally, is the government's insisting, governments and civil service, uh, civil servants, federally and provincially, insisting that the caretaker convention is still Extends in effect. like two months after the election. Until at some day, yeah. you know, so the white smoke blows out of PCO and yeah. they say uh, it's no longer the case. This was never the intention of the way no. um, the caretaker convention. Post-election, there's a clear result. The government is going to be returned. Yeah. It's off. Yeah, Ministers can go back to business. It is very, very clear like, it, and it's, as Etienne it said, it's clear result. It's not, like, when there's a new cabinet. It's not when blah, blah, blah. It is, do we know who the next prime minister is going to be? Okay, great. Caretaker's over. Bingo. Yeah. But, of course... It's very convenient for people to be able to say, oh, actually, uh, we're waiting on uh, PCO. And PCO is not super keen to, like, get moving really fast for whatever reason. And it's just a whole, so, like, bureaucratic yeah. buck passing of, like... Yes. Well, I can't do so, anything until someone else tells me I can. Yeah, just, there's, yeah, there's, what we're seeing is sort of a protracted, artificially imposed lame duck period 
which comes after I should note we've we've been harping on uh, the lame uh, duck is actually no longer uh, you can't say that it's very rude <laughs> impaired waterfowl which is all um, post election but you know I'd be remiss if I didn't note the lame duck periods that do occur before the elections and I mean all of this is not yeah. to say like democracy is bad. Um, it's just to have a realistic assessment of the opportunity cost of what elections cost us, which is basically like <laughs> six. Well, <laughs> I think there actually was some discussion of that during the election, to my recollection. True. <laughs> which is like six plus months of just inactivity. Yeah. Inactivity. And it's hard to square that with rhetoric yes, when around you put, when urgency. You put six months of government not doing anything, the $600, the $600 million price tag actually is a huge lowball. <laughs> Because if you take into account yeah. the lost productivity, it is enormous. Like, if you take into account that the federal government has a budget of somewhere between 250 and $300 billion a year, and it it is off for half the year, essentially, like, in terms of, like, moving files forward in, in a really concerted way, it's a lot of money. And, like, a lot of that is transfers, so not taken into account. But... Just to put it into perspective that it is a big number in the end if people are uh, sort of... And it's not to say that, like, yeah, and just just to be clear for people who, you know, don't really know Ottawa or the public service, it's not like public servants are literally doing nothing. It's just that, like, there is no political direction and they're not moving files forward in a sort of democratically accountable way when there are no ministers in place or when they're, you know, too busy thinking about the upcoming election to be heavily engaged in their files and like staff are starting to bleed out to a campaign that sort of thing so yeah there there are things that the civil service can continue to do which is quiet consultations you know listening um to stakeholders uh, using delegated powers that are non-political reversible inspecting meat plants you know like the the sort of like line work is continuing to get done it's just that there's yeah the the capital p policy process is not and and i should say all of this flows into now having sort of a delayed budget process um, because of how delayed this chunk of the year is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there was a fiscal update, too, wasn't there? There, there was a, <laughs> a, very, a very brief... And, and folks, uh, I, I, will, I will only harp on how inconsequential a fiscal update was to just to note that we were discussing what to talk about in this episode and it did not come <laughs> up as an object of interest. So. And there was a speech there from the go. throne. Yes. Um, so there have been some of these pro forma things that, that were required to do. Um, Though the, the economic update is not one of those. But the, the only other thing I would add is just that when we're talking about minority governments, and of course there's historical analysis of the amount of minority versus majority um, governments we have, and the Trudeau government is now going on to minority governments. If we're talking about a six-month cool-down and warm-up period, yeah. um, in between you know, periods of 18 months of government, 18 months... Yeah, I mean, essentially we had a government less that was of on, governing. Uh, we had a government that was really on from about February to May, February twenty twenty to May twenty twenty one, give or take. Maybe yeah, June. So if I I'm mean, being generous. if a third of our time is the powering up and powering down of elections, um, I don't. I don't think that speaks well to governance in this country. No. Uh, at sort of a macro level, one should reasonably expect a government to come back, form a cabinet within weeks, and get to the business of government, reconvening parliament. Yes. Um, that is supposed to be a feature of our decisive Westminster-style <laughs> elections, yes. in fact. Um, alas! Oh, like, this is actually funny, because people are talking about PR in the aftermath of the election, and you know they were laughing at the German Bundestag for you know having the like coalition negotiations going on. 
I think they ended up actually getting started about as fast as this government did, which involved no coalition negotiations. It was the guy who's been prime minister for six years, just like deciding to appoint largely the same people the cabinet. about. Yeah. It's like, it's kind of baffling. Like, a so, lot, lot fewer moving pieces to the whole thing. So I guess that takes us to a few of the different, the, the pieces that we've touched on. Let, let's begin with mandate letters because they're, you know, much awaited. When you talk to folks in Ottawa in the advance, you know, now that mandate letters are a public document. Yeah, it's which, interesting how quickly they've become a staple of like the the sort of political and attendant, you know, government relations world. So, both well, both the GR world, um, stakeholders, as well as the public servants, all generally kind of are frozen waiting for mandate letters, um, which the question of who writes the mandate letters and what is taken into account writing the mandate letters, I think is a really interesting one. Um, fundamentally, they're written by PMO and PCO. Um, departments at some level, one would presume, weigh into the process. Um, but it's always interesting to compare and contrast the mandate letters with the platform. Because at, at, most, at yeah. its most basic level, what you would expect to see is that the mandate letter is basically divvied up um, elements of the platform now by ministry um, with the boilerplate on on the front and the end, as well as maybe a few things, if this were a new government, that the uh, civil service has flagged as like, oh, these things really, really need to get done. Yeah, it's like we we signed a treaty with South Korea 20 years ago. It says we have to update our tadpole regulations, and that needs to get done right now. Okay, we got to put tadpole (laughs) regulations in there. That's the kind of thing that, you know, you don't think about when you're in opposition that uh, will land on your desk. Yeah. And so I guess the most interesting element of it, one, is seeing whether or not items were dropped um, between mandate letters or between platform and mandate letters. And like whether they were amended or whether things that were included that were not, you know, present in either. Given the length of modern platforms, like you're expecting to see a fair amount of change as like a lot of that just reflects prioritization of like what's actually important here in this hundred page document. Yeah. And then, and then I guess, where do you go with mandate letters? Every, everyone then when they engage in their political communications, be it in opposition or in GR land or where else tries to hook into the mandate letters um, in some way, shape or form. Yes. Uh, be it holding the minister accountable for... Our priority for, is actually your priority. <laughs> <laughs> be it holding the minister accountable for the items yeah. in their own mandate letter in sort of a scorekeeping fashion or developing that narrative alignment with uh, exactly what you said. Yes. Here are all the reasons why what we want to do is in fact what you want to do. Yes. Um, those those hooks are incredibly important. It's worth just elaborating a little bit that the, uh, the mandate letters being public are kind of a new innovation. They came yeah, out of the Ontario liberals. Um, and that was carried by butts and others into the, the federal level. Yes. There's really a question of, and I, I think is the, this actually doing anybody any good besides like stakeholders and GR people. And I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> I mean, that, I'm to think there's not a whole ton. That's like, it. Right. If you listen to the talking points, you're like, Oh, this is, you know, very transparent. It's like, well, we already, you already had an election platform, like ostensibly, like yes. that should be. Do like, you need formal rearticulations of the election platform? Yeah. 
And like, is, um, it, is because... it like mildly helpful? Like, sure, it's like an inf- it's a data point, but like, it's a data point of stuff they want you to think, right? Like, so it's uh... because they're public documents. <laughs> yeah, now. exactly. They're, they are no longer documents that are from the prime minister to the um to their ministers. And unfortunately, I think we're saying we're never putting this genie back in the bottle either. Go no. Ahead. But they're, they're not letters saying, here is priority number one, here is priority number two. They're now just laundry lists of a dozen priorities, and, you know, making priorities is hard, as... Uh, <laughs> as a great leader once said. As a great leader once said. And so it, it's kind of a, a laundry list of, like, 25, 30 different items for a minority government that you get the sense that there's too many things on each of these to reasonably all be priorities. So it's kind of what are the true priorities? No one knows. Well, and this takes us very elegantly to, I think a discussion of the cabinet committees. And before we do that, I just, I'm thinking it might be interesting to see if libraries and archives has now that, you know, like 30 plus year old mandate letters. It might be interesting to take a look at that. I don't, I don't know. Hmm. That's the historian in me, I guess. I'd be curious about what these used to look like. Um, or if I, they existed at all, I, I well, don't. They must have. I, I don't know. They did. I think they're a pretty old practice. Could have. I, I don't know. Huh? Well, if, uh, if yeah. anybody's a librarian archives, uh, give me a shout. I guess. Uh, but yes, cabinet committees were interesting. Um, in large part, I mean, cabinet committees, and I, we've touched on this before. Uh, it's basically we've. I think Etienne talked about this semi recently. Cabinet is often kind of hyped up as like the decision making apparatus of government. The reality is that it's not. Um, it's, it's all the cabinet ministers who are very, very busy people, all with their own, you know, issues to worry about and priorities to sort out and all of that stakeholders to worry about, etc. Uh, are all come into a room and someone does a 20 minute PowerPoint presentation on tadpole regulation. And they're like, yeah, sounds good. Whatever, man, go ahead. I don't care. And then it's like, when it's their turn, they get up there, they do the same thing. And everyone's like, yeah, I don't care. I'm the tadpole regulation guy. Well, that, that's not entirely fair. I think it's not, I don't care. <laughs> I think it's the like. I don't. Oh have... well, I have tadpole farmers in my in yeah. my riding. Have they been consulted on this? Like, yes. whoa, 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 slow down. Yes. What what does what does Larry the tadpole guy? What what has he said think, on your plan? I think at full cabinet, I get the impression that things are usually decided by the time it lands there, and the work happens at the committees where people come with their concerns about tadpole farmers and. Usually. There's obviously... Like, sure. Full... Yeah. Ca- well, and then I guess we need to make the distinction between full cabinet and... Uh, what are they calling it? Not priorities and planning, but agenda results and communication. Yeah, so let's There's talk a, a lot of... Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the structure of cabinet committees. So there's full cabinet, which, as we said, is not really a venue where you can do decision-making because it's it's too big, there's not enough time, um, and the issues are usually too granular to sort out in that venue. Uh, Nor would you want to. You, you don't, it's the same you don't want to do dis- decision making by full by a committee of, you know, how many cabinet ministers do we have? Seventy two, thirty eight, thirty nine with the prime minister. I think. Uh, so usually, what happens is that there is a sort of like brain committee, uh, which in in past years was called prior well past governments was called priorities and planning or something to that effect, and is now called agenda results and communications. And that's the prime minister sits on it. The vice chair is Christopher Freeland. And there's kind of a who is who of, of Trudeau brain trust individuals such as Jolie, LeBlanc, Rodriguez, Rodriguez, excuse me, Qualtro, Blair, I guess, to some extent, uh, Ng for sure, and Husson, who is kind of the odd man out there a little bit. Um, but that's sort of where you'd expect like a lot of these like big decisions are being taken and deliberated on to some extent, though cabinet committees, once again, do suffer from sort of the issue where you have not a whole lot of time in a very busy schedule to discuss issues that are quite granular often. So it can be, you know, it's tough to 
to prioritize that. Uh, and then you have a bevy of other ones. The one that is always consistent is Treasury Board. It's, in fact, the only cabinet committee that cabinet is required to have, uh, according to the Parliament Act, I think. Parliament Canada Act or something to that effect. It might be a different one, but whatever. They're supposed to have it. And that one basically does a lot of the, the green advisored dollar, sort of dollar counting. Yeah. So, and also the, the President of the Treasury Board is responsible for kind of overseeing the public service from a political side in terms of like labor relations, all that good stuff. So those are the two that you're going to see most often. And then from there, it's kind of just like, and you have a, usually like, yeah, there's operations, you've got a litigation management one. That's, you're often going to see those because it's kind of required. Apart from that, like, it's really up to the political flavor of the government to kind of decide. Well, you, even litigation be. management is a political flavored one. It is the, <laughs> the orange punch of the Trudeau government around sure. um, their uh, legal issues. Yes. But yeah, I think like the Harper government probably would have had a similar mm, in place. Like, I don't think so. On legal issues mm. at all? I don't think so. There, I mean, you wouldn't know better than I would. I mean, I was there the whole time. I was only there a brief period, but... Yeah. It would surprise not, me to think that there was no... Not that's ringing my bell. It would be surprising to me that there would be no subcommittee of operations on legal issues in a, in a government. But oh. that's neither here nor there. Um, the really standout thing here... In, in the recent set of cabinet committees is that there are two cabinet committees called economy, inclusion, and climate, which uh, listeners will understand to be uh, a lot of things uh, when you're talking about economy, inclusion, and climate. So economy is uh, virtually everything. Inclusion is the, I would interpret that to be sort of the, the social yes. side of the portfolios, uh, everything going through wage, which is uh, women. Wagey now. Wagey. Mm-hmm. Women, yeah, gender youth. equality. Uh, youth, etc. And then what's the last one? Climate. And climate, which is, of course, one of the big priorities that the government always uh, signals around. Yeah, and I think it's sort of te- like, those are the three things that the government is sort of like focusing on, which is a lot of things, admittedly, but it's economy. And it is not economy. easy making priorities. No. But So what's interesting is that there are two of them. They have identical um, sort of mission statements, which are consider such issues as sustainable and inclusive social and economic development, post-pandemic recovery, decarbonization, and the environment, as well as improving the health and quality of life of Canadians, which listeners will once again note is a lot of things. Uh, But yeah, so one of them is called Economy, Inclusion, Climate A, and the other one is called Economy, Inclusion, Climate B. Uh, They do not have any overlap in membership. A is chaired by Carp. Carla Qualtrough, who is, uh, returns as the sort of employment workforce development minister, and Pablo Rodriguez, who is coming back as the heritage minister, and has a diverse who's who membership, including uh, Wilkinson and O'Regan, who are the uh, natural resources and environment, or not, sorry, no, I missed I was like, what are you? There's actually, they're tellingly... O'Regan is labor. Yes, they're tellingly on the other side of each other. So Wilkinson is an A, and then Gilbo is in B, which is chaired by Champagne, who is the ISED minister, and Husson, who is now their housing and inclusion minister. So it's sort of, there's a lot of stuff there. It's interesting kind of how they've parceled it out with, like, sort of heavy hitters sort of spread between them. Uh, Mark Miller, Dominic LeBlanc, uh, Stephen Gilbo on B. You've got, as I mentioned earlier, Wilkinson and Duclos and Haidu and in so, A. So basically so what they've done... A mix. Is they've made two committees with identical mandates that are responsible for reviewing and providing input on everything that the government cares about. What is challenging about the creation of, you know, of this level of duplication on the cabinet committee is that... How do you parcel out the work? 
is like you like you ran you put it just like yeah. bingo ball like is <laughs> but it, but it's you would think that the folks so let's give an example say you have a piece of legislation that touches on you know energy uh, environment and natural resources a, it's very a, easy to imagine. A, <laughs> I'm not know, having a hard time imagining. There's, there's a few yeah. examples of this. Uh, C68 or 69, uh, whichever. Are you one the tanker ban? Wasn't the fisheries? No, the uh, environmental. Impact assessment, yeah, 69. Yeah. Okay, yeah. C69. Um, which one does it go to? And if it's going to one, does that mean that the minister of environment or the minister of natural resources is not going to be around the table for that conversation yeah. because they've been split over two different yes and it's it's i we're harping on those two because i think everyone saw that as like an interesting choice to to have made where stephen gilbo coming from a very activist background coming into environment replacing wilkinson who had been there uh and him moving into natural resources which is sort of it's all it's you know you've touched on this dynamic a lot in the past like i said in heritage when it comes to sort of like when cultural policy issues are often sort of adversarial in a way where I said is usually on the side of let's make things make more money and heritage on the side of let's have more regulation. Environment and natural resources tend to have a similar dynamic. So sure. it's a bit of an interesting play um, and one one to watch for the government for sure. Yeah, but one, yes, it, one in it, which you're often trying to weigh the pros and cons from both perspectives and in, in terms of your decision making. Yes, yeah, so it'll be interesting now that, as, as you say, there's a cabinet committee well, there's two cabinet committees where some things will be decided with one of these people not at the table uh, in places where those two issues really do often need to be considered complementarily. So there's that element of it in terms of like a single bill, but there's also like the track record of decision making around items in one category. Yeah, like, let's use like economy. Yeah. There won't be necessarily consistency in decision making around economic issues. Um, between the two cabinet committees based on the personalities um, that are there. So there's kind of like the... Yes, and the finance minister... They'll each only have half the picture. Yes, and finance is in neither of these in the person of Freeland, Um, which is... But once again, she's (laughs) she's She's in a lot of others, yeah. Yeah, she's sitting at the top of uh, others. Yes. So it just makes for a weird dynamic... And, you know, there's other, like, more procedural things. Like, if you're a stakeholder who's working with the government and you want to talk to the ministers who are going to be making decisions around your item, you don't necessarily know until maybe the 11th hour which cabinet committee uh, that the decision well, do we, do around we know, your... Like, which cabinet committees are deliberating which bills? Like, apart from, like, being able to just usually be able to look at the name of the bill and <laughs> see where it would slot in, like... I don't think their minutes are public. Like, I don't no, think no, necessarily no. No, Re- record of decision, all of those are very not public. But if you're a stakeholder working closely with the government you, you on tadpole, yes. on, you know, C20, <laughs> on C23, <laughs> tadpole, the tadpole breeding act. Tadpole harmonization with and, South Korea. And you're the, the tadpole expert. Um, the government is going to consult you along the way and say, okay, you know, we have an MC, it's going to cabinet. A memorandum and government. and you would presumably know I, I don't know if you know government can sometimes be more or less opaque about these things yes. but it, it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibilities someone would tell you no it's going to this cabinet committee yeah um and you'd say okay who are the ministers on that cabinet committee let me approach them and do sort of yeah. a pre-brief and explain to them um why c23 the tadpole breeding act is so important yes um 
that's not out of the realm of possibility. And with something like this, it's like, you don't, you now have twice as many ministers. There's a lot more confusion. You don't know if you're an ENGO, which of these ministers are your stakeholders on environment issues? What if your big bill goes to (laughs) whoops, (laughs) the other, like the other committee, it just, you well, have to wonder what way. the law... It's very good for government relations people. <laughs> they get to more, <laughs> more confusion in the system is always good. Yes. Um, Maybe that really is it, though, is that when you have a confusing system that's hard to follow, it pays to have people who know the system, which is where, where you know, the, the prof- that profession comes into play. Which is not, you know, like, it's... Yeah, it's... It, ideally, the tadpole farmers really should be able to figure out who to talk to without recourse to... You know, high-powered lobbyists, but here we are. One, one would think so. Um, so let let me try and give a defense of the government's decision making on this. Um, just just to do the sort of yeah. hypothetical other side of it. One of the common complaints um, that cabinet ministers have from time to time is they spend too much time in cabinet. Yes, and we, we touched on this in sort of our explanation of the, the image of harried, overworked cabinet ministers being like, yeah, I don't, I don't care. Sure, whatever. Fine. Tadpole's great. So they spend too much time in cabinet. The level of prep differs. That The idea here is to say, okay, here are our priority areas. There's too much for one cabinet committee. Otherwise, we'd be swamping down those cabinet yes. ministers. Let's split the work over two and be you know more efficient. Yeah. I mean, the downside to that is everything we touched on. Um, and it does beg the question of why not split up that economic one from that inclusion or environment? Why, why not make an environment committee for the environment stuff? And, you know, if the answer is like, oh, well, we don't have enough. It's like, OK, I'm sure you can work through um, having balancing the committee workloads without just creating two. Uh, multi-purpose, yeah, I'm try- all-purpose committee. I'm trying to remember the name of the sort of equivalent committee uh, that was sort of active for much of the government. Uh, I, yeah, I'm struggling to remember what it was. It was like economy, economy and social affairs or something. Uh, but yes, as you say, it was like everything was landing there. It was a huge, you know, people just didn't have the time to, to prep on the issues, etc. Things were getting bogged down. Um, which, of course, can happen. Um but yeah, I, I think that's like reasonable enough. But as we sort of outlined, it introduces new difficulties that I think will be interesting to see how they end up being addressed. Um, I think it's interesting to go back to 2015 and the, the sort of talk about a new era of cabinet government. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, that was like a big, you know, thing people were quite excited about. Uh, well, I say people, you know, political science professors and and you know, people like that. Um, but that was that was a big promise of the Trudeau government, not promise in the capital P way uh, of like it was in the platform. I, though I actually do think they had a point of the platform about cabinet government I think, and I not think writing things did. out of PMO. Yes. Uh, but this government has, like many predecessors, looked at the sort of things they have to deal with and the reality of their political situation and the rest of it and the speed of everything and decided, actually, we just need to, we need to centralize because we simply can't run a government otherwise if we don't know you know, if we're the right hand, we don't know what the left hand is doing. Um, and that's, I, I hesitate to place blame on governments not centralizing things, as opposed to not centralizing, sorry. Because it's, I think it's just a product of imperatives and incentives. Yeah, more centralization than is, has obvious yeah, benefits. More, more than it is a, a choice to be nasty and nefarious, right? Like, I think it's, uh, if we wanted cabinet government, we would enable it. 
instead of having an environment where we it's almost impossible to sustain. It turns out that the person who runs and becomes prime minister likes to keep uh, their grips on the reins of power. Turns out. And on decision making. Turns so. out. Well, it's in, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know how interested Justin Trudeau necessarily is in decision making. Well, but. <laughs> if nothing else, likes delegating it to a single person that he trusts. Yeah, and, and her cell phone. Um, yeah, no, so it, it's, it, it, it's hard for me to be overly critical of that because I recognize that structurally there's very little alternative in our kind of our current system as as it operates um and like i think you would pay a hefty price in trying to do it another way um so yeah it's it's to say that we're not saying this in a spirit of of judgment and condemnation but it just it is what it is so there was a twitter exchange between andrew coin uh noted globe and mail columnist yes and and noted sort of parliamentary purist um and Catherine mckenna um noted former uh environment minister uh no uh infrastructure infrastructure and environment ministers um over you know the presumed substance of cabinet ministers roles in the present government Mm -hmm. um and andrew coin was of the perspective that holds with uh, a lot of the academic writing in canada uh, about the centralization of power in the prime minister's office, that cabinet was basically a rubber, st- or uh, cabinet committees were basically rubber stamp factories. And Catherine McKenna chimed in and said, "You know, I wasn't a rubber stamp during my time in cabinet." Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a fascinating piece to be written about the perception of ministers versus the reality of ministers in terms of uh, decision making their portfolio. Mm-hmm. That the influence of PMO is from, you know, from square one, from the mandate letter, um, all the way through the process, all the way through to cabinet, and then after the fact, in terms of issue managing and stage managing everything from the comms all the way through. Um, ministers, for obvious reasons, who are um, individuals who run for office independently and have their own political ambitions, do not like the idea that they are not in charge of their own destinies, that they are not, um, you know, making decisions every single day. They're presented with documents that they have to tick Say, a box I agree. and, I do and not make, agree. And make decisions. Yeah. And it creates the perception um, that, you know, their day is full of decisions that they are making. Yeah. But there's kind of a disconnect between sort of the, the Andrew Coyne, the uh, I'm forgetting the academic who wrote uh, Donald Savoie. There's kind of a disconnect between sort of the the meta-analysis of how influential cabinet ministers are and, I would say, the belief of cabinet ministers themselves around the value of the work that they're doing. Yeah, it's Because it's hard to be self-critical of your own, you know, the the worst person to ask um, on any of these things is the person who's most conflicted. And so no cabinet minister, (laughs) you know, you'd have to find a very honest and very... Um, introspective cabinet it's, minister it, who would tell you, it's interesting that you say I that did virtually nothing. It's interesting that you say that because uh, a couple months ago I read uh, Jodie Wilson-Raybould's new book and it, she's she has some very interesting things to, to say about precisely the sort of relationship of cabinet with the prime minister. And I think, you know, she was very proud of the work she had done in, for instance, uh, criminal code revisions and, and all of this. And that's that's, you know, but I think she also found and i think that's come out fairly obviously even for people who haven't read the book that she chafed a lot at the degree to which the prime minister and pmo 
micromanaged a lot of things. Um, and I think it's very telling there, too, that it was on issues that were not political priorities for the prime minister, which is to say stuff like you know criminal reform, um, sure. that she was had a long leash to sort of do whatever she wanted. And then there was stuff like reconciliation, where the prime minister had a vision, um, and there was less room for her to make an imprint on the process. Uh, and one thing that was really telling and interesting that I noted was that they, when it, we've mentioned this a million times, but prime minister, uh, PMO appoints ministers, chiefs of staff, largely. There is a little bit of give and take there and pushback and all of that, but largely that's the rule. And apparently the chiefs of staff do not like it when ministers talk to each other uh, without sort of involving either the chiefs of staff or PMO as a sort of intermediary. Like there's there's a dislike of ministers sort of forming their own. I don't want to say power bases because I don't want to say it like everything is cynical, like, you know, power monitoring and, and staging yourself for the next leadership race. But even just like working relationships, right, without the sort of intermediation of this person who is probably put in their job by the prime minister's office. Like there's a real a perceived need at the center to have a line of sight into everything ministers are saying to each other. Uh, as well as direct lines into their offices and the person of their chiefs of staff. Um, so I, I think that that's an interesting sort of contrast to McKenna's. And I think it probably is true that McKenna felt she had a lot of latitude because I think her vision on her files was very aligned with the prime minister. Yeah. So she probably had very little difficulty in moving stuff along in the direction she wanted. I think to take a sort of counterexample to that is the example of Harjit Sajjan, who... Uh, I think it's fair to say struggled as defense minister to move on files, but it didn't really matter because the prime minister, it wasn't an issue that the prime minister was particularly interested in until it became a real political problem for him in the last year or so. So I think that if you are able to operate in places where the center is indifferent, then you're going to have much more leash to succeed or fail uh, on issues than if you are in an issue where the prime minister is quite intimately involved. Yeah, I, I think that is all all fair and likely correct. Obviously, if you're doing tadpole regulations, the he loves the, the watchful big brother yes. will will not necessarily be He's as, French. He uh, grew up into frogs, and he can eat them as on your back. Or if you happen to find yourself in perfect alignment with the you know in perfect ideological. Yeah, because I mean, like, how much daylight is there between Catherine McKenna and Jerry Butts on climate issues? Like, I imagine it's not a whole lot. <laughs> you know, like it's, I just think there's not a whole lot of like pressure being generated in that relationship. Yeah, I, I think that's likely right, and. So unless you're in one, you know, unless you have the experience, and I guess this is ultimately why we can't give a, a really good picture of how this works in this government, because very few people have the experience of their portfolio or of working in the different ministries and speak candidly about their experience of being both, you know, well aligned with what the center wants to do and yeah. fundamentally unaligned with what the center wants to do and wanting to champion their own agenda. Um, but what I think is safe to say is we don't see a ton of ministers in this government um, championing or spearheading their own initiatives out from under the th thumb of the prime minister's office. Yeah, and certainly if we were to see it, I think those ministers who would be politically canny enough to sort of say, this is a great success for the prime minister. <laughs> like, like, let me give you... A, if you're going to do your own thing, you want to share credit. That's for damn sure. Yeah, I can... I guess the example of the... The counterexample that I'm having trouble classifying in this discussion is someone like Christia Freeland. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So Minister Freeland kind of 
uh, you know, the deep, you is will. is uh, the successor apparent uh, to the prime minister, or or at least that's the way um, it's talked about in Ottawa. That's that's you, you um, captured that with apparent, I think, <laughs> or the apparent. <laughs> um, she is one of the more independent um, cabinet ministers. The, um, he insists on being called the deep. <laughs> That is that is not uh, confirmed. Um, so a lot of folks would turn and say, like, she's the counterexample. But then the, the question that comes up is, what has she done that is unaligned or likely to be unaligned with what the center has wanted? Mm. And, like, you know, unless it's coming up, like, the reining in of spending during COVID period was at one point... Um, speculated to be one of her priorities, but mm-hmm. we have not seen that to be the case. No, and she sort there of hasn't she said been, things in both directions on that. There hasn't been a ton of daylight between her and the prime minister, if, as you would hope not to be your finance minister. Yes, but it's kind of the the popular conversation has kind of had it both ways that she's kind of um, yeah independent, uh, fiercely independent, and independently minded. Um, but the track record of results in yeah. terms of like big picture items that does not belie that. I think that. she's very deliberate and careful in walking that line for precisely that reason, right? Like, I think she wants to be able to say to liberals in the event of, of a leadership race, we're going to, you know, hey, look at what I did. I was with the big guy all the way. And then turn to a general electorate and say, I know you were angry about some of the excesses of the, the Trudeau government. And I'm here to say, so was I. And here's what I did differently, right? So and that's and that's not to say she's like over the cynical. I think it's if you're a person who's well, it's a little cynical. But if you're someone who wants to be prime minister, you, you want to play for the team while leaving plausible daylight between you and where you want to be, you know? The, uh, not, the I mean, the other example of this... <laughs> Uh, that comes to mind, and this is, of course, just from media reporting and stories about Bill Morneau, mm. is that, you know, I think it was put this way in one or two pieces, that Bill Morneau came to Ottawa and said, like, you know, if I become finance minister, years one through X are going to be sort of me learning how Ottawa works, and then from there I'm going to really take the reins and yeah. and put my Narrated. stamp on he things. He did not take the reins or leave <laughs> a stamp on things. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, boy, did that not happen. No, yeah. Um, so, I mean, that is just another uh, piece to be conscious of, yes. is if that is your approach, you know, you don't necessarily know how long your runway is going to be, and when uh, when a tasty job yeah. at the OECD is going to come up and <laughs> that you're going to... Yeah. I, I would say Morneau, very different person than Freeland. I mean, Morneau, very much born into the, the old boys club of, of Canadian, relatively old money. Um, Freeland does not really come from that world, uh, and has made her own stamp on things just in getting where she is in a way that bill morneau i think never really had to in life um so credit to her for that but yes it's a very different relationship i think in that way is there anything else you want to add about i mean anything in the coming year that you're uh you're, you're keeping an eye on coming year um i mean there will the the construction of parliamentary committees um, will be slightly different. The ad hoc, was it ad hoc? I guess it'd be, well. The COVID special it, it wasn't, committee? Yeah. yeah. No, I was going to say the, the China committee. Ah, yes. Um, it's a special committee. Is Sorry, special. Yeah. is the language, not ad hoc. It's not going to be a thing. 
Um, there's the establishment of the Science and Research Committee um, as a... Afghanistan as well? Standing committee. I haven't seen the latest I've, on what's going yeah, on. Yeah, I've kind of lost track of that. There's some back and forth around Afghanistan. Um, so, I mean, the parliamentary side of things should be ramping up in... Late this month. Uh, yeah, if not, if not February, speaking, yeah. early February. Yeah. Um, so that will be the biggest one. The reintroduction of a lot of bills... Um, C10 will be one of them to see whether how, how materially yes. yes the artist formerly known as C10 how materially um, the government is going to take the criticism and feedback it received around this was the the bill that was substantially uh, well redesigning the internet I think in the, uh, <laughs> uh, is what uh, skeptics or critics would say of it yeah um, but aside from that like. I mean, the legislative agenda of this government has always been so sporadic. It's not something they ever tend to put a ton of energy in. It does not move forward with the momentum of a steamroller, that's for sure. No. It's a strange... Do steamrollers have... Momentum? I would imagine so. The... They have a lot of inertia going on when they're moving. Yeah, but they're know? not moving fast. They're not moving and fast. Momentum's a... Forward, so Yeah, I suppose not. Yeah, so if you're going really slow... You don't have well, they're not really them. grinding on either, though, right? Like, I would say that I would say that the quality it's like a locomotive. Is I would say more. that the quality of a steamroller is its inexorability, which I think is not so much an adjective I would give this government's legislative agenda. Sure, I it will. does not sort of proceed mercilessly. <laughs> no, um, I will. at any pace, really. I will accept that it is like an aging lawnmower. So, I mean, I guess the uh, a good closing note for this. Um, would be, of course, to touch on uh, finishing the fight. Uh, Sir. <laughs> oh. No, that's going to be that's gonna be the music at the start of this episode. Um, it, you know, it's the finish the fight mark five that we're at. Every, every budget and fiscal update in the last two years has been the finishing the fight one. I believe the first time it was deployed in earnest was the 2020 November fiscal update. So... That's bleak. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, here we are. The fight is still going on. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there will be a really interesting period um, in the future if we do, in fact, finishing, finish the fight of the uh, scaling back of COVID supports and the pivoting to economic growth. Freeland's language um, was that this budget will be the the economic growth budget, mm-hmm. um, which has been, you know, what people, a lot of people have been waiting for for several years from this government. Um, how seriously uh, the government makes this an economic growth budget, I think, is up in the air. Um, I mean, I think a the lot of their A lot of their priorities, strictly speaking, are not economic growth they're yeah. more sort of on the social side of things which of course you can make the argument that you know things like child care facilitate economic labor growth, force participation baby etc cetera, etc cetera, but not the kind of dollars and cents economic growth direct tie-in that uh, a lot of the bay street folks let's say so, yes let, are, let's are looking are, are looking for <laughs> they, they want to see spreadsheets they want the spreadsheets to have a dick it needs to be all very male coded uh so i mean yeah we'll see what an economic um, growth agenda looks like from a Freeland finance. 
a Freeland and Sabia finance. At Indeed, yes. I suppose there's a whole whole book to be written about the Kremlinology of Finance Canada right now. One day. Indeed. Uh, I think that'll do it for us. I suppose we ended up just doing a pretty normal episode. Yeah, all fine. things said and done, uh, as we often do. So uh, to, to you and yours, a, a uh, happy 2022, and uh, we wish you a happy finishing the fight. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> oh, yeah, actually, before we go, uh, you should follow us on Twitter and rate us on iTunes and all of that that we usually um, say at the end of the episode. Whatever podcasting uh, app you use, it warms the, the cockles of our hearts it actually does i actually do sometimes like to go and see if there's a nice little review i can read um and i go oh that's a nice thing for them to say stephen edmonton buddy (laughs) i think i think of you often (laughs) so uh yeah that's it bye-bye